Hi, this is Derek Karp, the founder and chairman of CSA and the host of the CSA podcast show. And I've got another great guest in my uh, leadership biography series. I have uh, coming up next here, uh, interview with Donovan Tyndall. Donovan is the director of OT cybersecurity at DeNexus. He's been long associated with and probably very well known to be with Honeywell. And we'll talk about his career path. But if you don't know uh, Donovan, he is a very uh, long time contributor to this space, longer than most can claim, but he's uh, beyond being just a cybersecurity enthusiast. Uh, he's a professional speaker, a husband, a father, a coach. He's an outdoor enthusiast, which is always near and dear to my heart as I am too. He's a camper, he's a handyman, he's a tinker, he's got a home lab, so he can claim he's working when he's tinkering in his lab, but most likely. So welcome to the show, Donovan. Thank you, great to be here and thank you so much. Well, let's uh, let's unpack the Donovan story. Um, I know you you know have been at this for uh, for for longer than most. Um, I sort of always start this out as you know the same way, which is sort of talking about people's backstory. All superheroes have a backstory, and cybersecurity folks are some version of modern day superheroes in my book. So where's uh, where where did Donovan come from? I grew up rural, you know, just a, a gravel road, a couple of acres to entertain myself. Was playing in the yard, a bike. You know, and if I, you know, wanted to jump off of something, I probably had to go build it, right? So, you know, whatever was lying around, we'll call it the farm or whatever, where there, there was farms all around and K to our grade one to 12, same school, riding the school bus. And um, yeah, so when I started my career, I went from there to the city. So I was one of the few that left the, the rural small town part of Alberta. And that's kind of where I started. You're Canadian, which we didn't cover, but uh, and you live in you live in uh, Edmonton now, right? Yes, Edmonton, Alberta now, which is only I guess about an hour and a half from where I grew up. I didn't okay. move too far. I just moved yeah. to the nearest city and for yeah. school and work, and it's it's kind of worked out for me with family nearby and friends nearby. I've not made many of the the big moves that I know many have where, you know, they'll pick up and they'll go to a different country, a different city, or even do that every three or five years. I've, I've, I've actually always been in the same spot uh, for mo pretty much all of my career, except for the, except for the work trips that has taken me all over the world. Well, let's talk about uh, when technology intersects with the, uh, the tinkering on the, on the, you know, in the country, on the farm, on the farm, as you said, uh, I can imagine all sorts of mechanical things, but uh, you know, I, I I know a little bit about your story. The computers uh, sort of come in there intersect pretty early too. Yeah, I think it was around. My uncle was in the military. As part of his training, he had to build a computer, and that one he built, he's like, when he's done, he's like, what do I do with it? So he actually gave it to our family. So I got this yellow monochrome with five and a quarter floppy disks uh, computer, and that was my entry point. I was about grade six, so that would be about 10 years old, and got me started. And I actually was, I had no idea the terminology. And I was like, oh, I want to play this game. And I put it into the computer and it said, well, and I'm like, how do I start it? So I'm like, well, if I format it, maybe that will start it. And I didn't, I had no idea what the word format meant at the time. So I actually did not ever get to play that game again. And it kind of took off from there through high school. We didn't have our own internet, but the high school did. And it was a rural high school, and it would dial into the neighboring town. A friend and I, we stole Trumpet Windsock and the login credentials and the number, and we would call each other up at late at night, and we'd be like, okay, are you dialing in? No, I'll, okay, 
you go in for an hour and you can go on the internet. And we actually stole the internet for off the school because they didn't use it during the evening. And that's what got me onto the internet. We did multiplayer gaming over that same dial-up back and forth, 14.4, and then, you know, upgraded slowly. You know, video games is really what got me into it and networking the computers together. So I had one, my parents had one, and I connected them together with an null modem. And actually, that's what sparked me like, wow, I can connect a whole lot of computers together. And that's what led me to go into network engineering, which was my first program of choice. Yeah, I, you know, gaming was games were, was where I started to I had a Commodore 64, uh, my brother before me. So I'd seen his his computer, which he was taking apart and rebuilding, you know, ahead of me. And so and you chose to go uh, uh, go get some network training immediately, go, go work on some degree work, you know, right out of that. Uh, where'd you go? And what did you study? I looked at the university path and I thought, you know what, I don't want to waste two years just learning normal, academic, boring stuff. So I went right into a technology program network engineering. So in two years, you are up to your shoulders in Unix, Windows NT, switching, routing, um, network engineering. And when you come out, you know, you can, out of the gate, you can be the IT admin for any small company right out of the gate. And that was kind of the uh, where I started. Um, and I loved connecting everything together, the, the network engineering and the protocols and all of that just really clicked. Uh, it made sense to me and I did really, really well. Uh, in that program. Yeah, and I've heard people say, many people on this show, and, and that that um, if there's one thing to fundamentally understand, especially maybe for people coming from the engineering side of things and not, not starting with ITs, understand how networking, how the networking behaves, how it works, is one of the fundamental things that regardless of what your background is, any kind of OT cybersecurity effort, make sure if you don't already know it, understand the basics of, uh, of networking and networking protocols. Yeah, and I never really... I kind of took it for granted, obviously, because that was the program I took. And then when yeah. you, you you work with fellow technologists who are either software engineers or control engineers, and you know they know they know development extremely well, or they'll know the a programming language or a control system really well. And yeah, it, they really struggle with, you know, how do you get these things to talk? And I was like, oh, that's that's where I come in. So that's, yeah. you know, and um, even the early part of the career um, was just connecting things together. And that's what got me into the, the, the customers facing side of the work too, which we'll, we'll, we'll get into that anyway. Yeah, well, not many people can, can claim this, but 23 years at Honeywell uh, through acquisition and which, you know, I, I'd like to ask you, you know, to talk a little about, but that's a long tenure with almost all of that. And I think, you know, definitely would like you to say when sort of cybersecurity and OT converge, because for you, it's earlier than for many people. So what were you doing first after you finished that uh, program, that two-year program, and went you know, into the workforce? What was that first step? The first role was an IT guy uh, for a small startup in Edmonton called Matricon. And anybody that's in the OT space now would recognize Matricon OPC. And uh, this even proceeded before the even OPC existed. They were building custom drivers, and they just they needed IT guys to help run the shop. But interestingly, to connect... Um, they were doing a lot of historian work at the time, actually. Um, in order to get that historian communicating from the control system up to the business network, you needed to put in routers and firewalls. And, you know, the, the very beginning of what I wouldn't call it convergence, I would call it integration, where control systems and IT networks were being connected to each other. I started doing that in early 2000. And my first project was a polyethylene plant in the Middle East. It was a 
huge facility, six different operating units. Each one was a DCS all its own, and they needed to network it all together so that the historian could get the data out. I did the domain controller work, the fiber optics, the switching, the routing, even early level three access filters, which at that time, the only way you did filtering is you bought a Cisco PIX, right? You didn't do that on routers and we were just starting to get into that technology. And so my early start into OT was actually connecting business and control systems together and doing the infrastructure and the networking. Um, and we were actually the bad guys. We were actually, you know, they joke about, they're like a dual homed computer. Well, at the time that was perfectly acceptable. That was normal. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and that leads to my, my, my logical question, you know, was security yet even really discussion? I mean, you were, I, the way I listened to you, like make it happen, make it work, you know, connect these things, you know, new capabilities, this is awesome. Was security part of the discussion at all yet? The customers, well, they probably still do today, but then you definitely were dragging them in, right? It was just really more get it connected, get the data. By 2002 or so, I started to recognize this problem of malware trying, you know, could potentially get into these environments. Yeah. And when you have converged technology, which when I hear about ITOT convergence, I separate it into two words. So there's a quick tangent. There's the integration of the systems, which has been going on for, you know, it's, it just continues to evolve. First, it was the business networks. Now we're seeing it connect to the internet and machine learning. So the integration is always going to happen. The convergence is when you reuse the technology. Well, that's been going on for 40 years. It's not a new thing at all. So I recognize the convergence, which was the use of Windows technology and Ethernet and TCP IP and routing in a control system back in 2002. I'm like, this malware, if it gets into this environment, like Sasser, that was one that hit our business network. I'm like, that one would have a lot of fun, just blue screening the entire. And I'm like, okay, we got to change right then. So we stopped doing dual homing. We started doing firewalls. We started you know, thinking about it back then. And it evolved into when we had to connect the two, cybersecurity was part of it then, right? And then it just grew. Then it became patching and antivirus and remote management and backups. And it always was kind of evolving or this journey of what was the right cybersecurity or the right technologies to put in. So back then, uh, in the early 2000s, putting antivirus was har a hard discussion. And firewalls to protect it was a hard discussion, where today it's just, it's a given, right? We, we've, we've, we've evolved from there. You know, that's an interesting reflection right there, because often there's this, um, and you, you, you're you going to have a, you know, a, you're in a position to have an informed opinion about, have we made any progress? Because is that class full? Is it half empty? And you can look around, there's so much still to do, and there's flat networks still, and, you know, all these, there's plenty of work to do, right? There's lots of undone things. Yep. And we're retrofitting cybersecurity on some things that weren't designed with it. But your comment also had a little optimism in it, and it weren't, it's not like we haven't made any progress. Yes. I would say now, looking back, is different industries are in a different position of their journey. So I've, I, you know, a key word that, or a key phrase that I use over and over is cybersecurity journey. And different industries are further along and they would be like oil and gas, chemicals, anything that was driven by safety as a priority in that sector was driven into cybersecurity sooner because they recognized cybersecurity of a control system has a operability, a major safety um, or reliability problem. Yeah. 
and then regulation behind it, et cetera. But then if we look at emerging sectors, I call these the second generation. So I think of uh, some parts of pharmaceuticals, food, pharma, maritimes, water, you know, they weren't the early, first adopters, but they're, they're now on this journey that many other industries have already gone down. So they're, they kind of have less technical baggage behind them, but they also get a bit of an advantage because they get to learn from the other industries. Yeah. And so when they move into cybersecurity for the first time, they're stepping in at a much better starting point than we used to years ago. So there is advancement by, by far. Well, it's still, still a long way to go. I've, I've still got a vision of how far we could be, right? And there's still a long ways. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you you beat me by, you know, roughly eight to 10 years of, of my exposure to this subspace of cybersecurity. I, I only started coming in 2011 over into this side of things. So that you have a whole decade before that. And I was curious, you know, the, the, the few of you that on the show that go back that far, I would have said in 2011 that the next three or four years were going to be pretty explosive. And they weren't. They were just incremental, but they weren't. It didn't. It didn't take off. I don't know if we can even say nowadays. I mean, it's a thermometer and the temperature seems to be going up every year. Progress is being made. There's there's things that can be measured or observed, but it's not radical. It's just it's sort of stepwise. You know, it doesn't seem like it's a, a hockey stick of like now we're all thinking it's seriously really going to do it. But like you said, some industries do have some hockey sticks over the last six or seven years. But societally, there's just yeah a lot a lot more to do. Well, so talk about, so uh, Matricon, you know, I don't know if there's anything else from the Matricon years that you would go back and say, here's a story about sort of OT cyber that really, you know, a distinctive sort of uh, a moment or canary in the coal mine, uh, uh, you know, that, that you would recall. Um, and then obviously uh, there's an acquisition in there. And um, what, what, what from that phase, any, anything pop out uh, memory wise? Um, I would say the, the mid 2000s, around the 06, 07, it was shortly after the Northeast blackout. It started to, that's where we really accelerated because we happened to have relationships with a lot of power companies. And so that kept us busy. And because the, the unfortunately regulation is not always seen as, it's not always the easiest means. It's not always logical. Why are we doing it this way? Because the regulation says so, but it really moved that industry forward. Um, we regrew dramatically through that. We learned a lot from it, from trying to comply, because I think the biggest difference between going for, into cybersecurity voluntarily versus compliance is in both, you can do the job. But when you do it for compliance, if you don't record that you did it, it didn't matter if you did it or not, right? It's all about the evidence. So you, we've lear we learned a lot through that. And so we had built a reputation in industry with the customers we had that, you know, they're like, you know, these guys know what they're doing. So we would have customers, I remember one, from 2003 to 2011, every two or three years, we were the ones that would come back and do their risk assessment. And what I thought was interesting is that, you know, the first assessment, maybe a week or two, because it didn't take long to tell them that, you know, you've got a long ways to go. But each time, as their maturity improved, or as their journey improved, you would actually spend more time looking into their program. And then it would take more time to assess because their program was better. And we were able to show their progression from 03, how much they had improved every couple of years. And we found a point where they actually had gone backwards. 
they had focused, you know, they thought, okay, our good, our, for example, our patching program and our antivirus program, we don't need to give attention to that anymore. And they had actually gone backwards from the previous because they had overlooked it and they were patching less frequent and less systems were updated because they moved on to other areas. Anyway, we gained a lot of cross-industry experience. That's where I got a lot of exposure, right? Because we were vendor neutral, which was awesome at the time, right? Because you get to play with Emerson and Honeywell and Siemens and ABB, and you get to play with everybody's stuff. Um, and that's what was probably where you get to, uh, there's no, what would be the word? There's no conflict of interest. You just, you get to focus on what is the right thing to do. You have no, you know, you don't have to toe the party line, you know, anything like that. That was, that was, that was great. And then we brought that forward. Uh, a lot of that knowledge when, when the Honeywell acquisition came through, we were the one vendor independent or vendor neutral team that was able to work on the non Honeywell stuff. Once we got pulled into the Honeywell fold. Yeah, I, I remember a conversation you and I had a long while ago. Um, the Honeywell cybersecurity practice would would work does work on other than Honeywell equipment. Yeah, it the the consulting side is vendor neutral, but unfortunately, you have a, a an assumption or a bias in industry, and I think all the vendors face this actually, and you know not just Honeywell, but Siemens, Yokogawa, Rockwell. They're all look. They're all have capabilities to offer services outside of just their own control system, but there's an apprehension that'd be like, wait a minute, that's your system, you focus on that, or um, they don't even consider a vendor to be able to help them out with other types of control systems. So that was a that was always a big roadblock for us growing in the Honeywell cybersecurity business was trying to overcome that. One, Honeywell offered cybersecurity, and yeah. two, it could be offered for other vendors as well. And like I say, Honeywell, Rockwell, they all kind of face that bias yeah. that, you know, you're, you worry about your own, your own, because I've spoken with other vendors and they face the same thing. That makes sense. There's a perception, but perception doesn't always equal reality. I didn't realize the full scope of what, you, what Honeywell's doing until you and I talked about that that one time. Um, I, I should go back to one thing though. Somewhere in the middle of this, during the Matricon years, um, let's talk about why you decided to go back and sort of take your, what you had done, the, the first program, and complete a degree program, what motivated you to do that? You took your own leave of absence and came, went and came back to Matricon. What was, what was involved in that decision? There may be people out there that, that are similar. They've had technical training. And uh, yeah, I'd like to, well, there's three or four things I'd like to ask you about. So what, yeah, what motivated your decision to do that? I think everyone early in their career, they hit that three or four year mark. And they're like, okay, I've been doing this same job for three or four years, and now it's like, it's not doing it for me anymore. I want to change. I want to do something different. And at the time, the career opportunity and my role, it really was keep doing what you're doing. So I decided to leave the organization on good terms. I've, I had already, it had seriously been seed planted with Matricon as a startup, the whole entrepreneurial mindset, right? Like, you know, run my own business, you know, just, you know, uh, that, that passion and growth and all of that. And I decided, you know what, for me to run my own business in networking or cybersecurity or whatever it was going to be, was going to need to be an MBA. So the, the, the lazy side of me says, I don't want to go back to another four-year university program to get an MBA. So I found a program that would allow me to keep my degree and use it towards a bachelor's program that then had 
was known or allowed to go into an MBA program. So that was always my kind of plan yeah. to leave and get an MBA program. And this was kind of my stepping stone. So very utilitarian that the reason I need to, you know, I need to go get this program so that I can go to get the MBA. Once I get the MBA, maybe I'll have more business knowledge. I can go run another business or something, you know, run my own. Yeah. But in the end, I called back my old employer and I, my old boss. And I said, you know, I'm just, you know, I could use a reference. And he's like, well, why, why go anywhere? We'll, we'll take you on back. I'm like, well, I don't want to come back into the same role. And this is in about the 2002 where I observed what we now know as the OT area, right? You've got the control system at the bottom. You've got IT above it. And we call it OT now. It didn't have a name back then, but I saw growth. And I actually did direct sales, cold calling, trying to integrate business and control systems in what we now call OT back then. It's way ahead of the curve. Yeah. Trying to, and that was me, my entrepreneurial, like, I think we can grow this. And the president, you know, uh, recognizing my passion and conviction. And he's like, yeah, you, you've done well. Um, let's give it a try and see how it goes. Right. And, you know, it's, it, it did grow, you know, here we are today. Yeah, well, and uh, I don't know if I'm doing the math right. You know, 19 years later, you know, see when you went back, you went back and you were there. You were there a long time. Um, and industrial cybersecurity from that part forward, it was has been part of your DNA. I mean, that's that's when it's been part of your titles and positions and areas of responsibility. Um, again, long before most people can say that was part of their focus. Yes, and I've I've committed my career to it now. Like, there's no going back. Um, you know, obviously many know that I've recently changed roles and as part of that was, do I even stay in industrial cybersecurity? Do I just focus on product management or marketing or just cybersecurity? And I'm like, no way I'm staying in industrial cybersecurity. Uh, it still has a long way to go. Uh, I've got a good foundation, a lot to contribute back to this industry. Yeah. I, I, overall, I think we're halfway of what my vision is of what we could do. Uh, yeah, in this sector. I'm looking at your, your, I just called up your LinkedIn profile and I think people listen to the show. It's like sales, you, you, you've been exposed to so much. You've dropped some of the words now I and mean, there's project management and there's product management and all these different things besides just cybersecurity or, or, or um, operational technology. Sales, industrial cybersecurity, networking, of course, still there, senior security consultant, industrial security, compliance, principal security consultant, HPS, industrial cybersecurity, professional services, Product manager, you know, product management, strategist, uh, cybersecurity marketing. I mean, you've touched on all the pieces. Yeah, like an intern, right? Like, you know, like the, you know, like going through a dealership or something, you know, going through all of the parts of the business, like sales and service. And, you know, um, you know, I've, I've done sales, marketing, product management, project management, individual contributor, team leader, just. Part of it, and that's what I think has allowed me to enjoy working at Honeywell so long is because about every three years, I actually call it, I would invent a role or my role would evolve. And that's what kept me interested and excited and evolved, right? Is I don't think I ever had the same role more than four years. And is that, I mean, thinking about people who might be listening who are making career choices and, and figuring out how to maneuver within their company or leave their company as case, you know, might be. You stayed, but you did. You were making course corrections and adjustments and looking for new roles and things. Is that a proactive thing, or was that just the culture there? There were opportunities, and you raised your hands and yeah, I'll do that. Or were you were you helping create the opportunities? Because I think that's something that people are troubled by. What do I do next? How do I how do I do it? And some cultures are more maneuverable than others. I had to create them. 
So essentially, I would look across what do we need as a business? What do I enjoy? Where is a growth area? For example, there was a one of the areas, let me think of the story. We were onboarding new people all the time. And as you know, training industrial cybersecurity people, you're not going to hire anybody that has the skills you need. You need to train them, right? So uh, recognized a need to train that skill set. And I thought it was interesting. I got to, I was like, um, I made a pitch to build a new hire training program and certifications and, you know, um, and contributed to a lot of what we're already doing. And those were the kinds of, I would call these side projects, right? That I saw a need, I'd make a pitch, or I'd even start work on my own on this initiative that I thought was for the right reasons, and that it would eventually, my role would evolve. It would either become this new thing would become dominant, or it would just give me lots of satisfaction because we got to the end of it. It was successful. It was useful. There was, you know, the business needed it. There was a lot of recognition. Um, so I would say I was very courageous, bold. If I thought something needed to be done, I just went with it. And then it was always under because the business needed it. And then it always paid off, right? As long as I was thinking about what, you know, helped. Um, There's a gold nugget in every one of these sessions. And I think uh, that seemed to be one of them right there, which was paying attention to what the business needed versus what necessarily you needed. I mean, you found things that appealed to you, but you started with, because you used the phrase more than once, like what was needed by the business, understanding the business's goals, then whatever proposal or suggestion you had to make, if they had that context, had a, had a much, at least had a much better chance, I would interpret as uh, to fly, to, to, to move, you know, to happen, to occur, or whatever you, you know, whatever you want to yeah. say, because it was based I, on that. You know, an example, and I think a lot of people could, do this in their own organizations. If you like training people and you like teaching and you like industrial cybersecurity, I'm pretty certain that most organizations would need or admire cybersecurity training for their peers. Like, you know, they're just looking for somebody within the, already within the team that would stand up and say, hey, I've created a, a module that kind of simplifies or introduces people to this problem. And that's an example of a business need that perhaps you enjoy doing and the company needs to know, and you just so boldly jump into it. And then in the end, guess what? It's, you know, it just, it's a win-win. That's a great example too, because we need, we need to create security culture and get everybody on board, not make everyone an expert. And I liked how you said, you know, maybe a simplified, you know, introductory module that everybody or a bunch of employees could benefit from that raising the bar is so essential. And so that's a great example of something somebody could do that can make a big difference. If that was happening more in a lot more corporations, we could build sort of like safety culture, we can build a security culture. And uh, that doesn't mean make everybody an expert, but it sure as heck means bring everybody's hygiene up from where it is now on average to, to some higher level. Yeah, yeah. That's a good And the, you, you keyed on like safety culture versus security culture. And if I look ahead at the next 20 years, um, that's it's one of those predictions that I do foresee that there will be a security culture where a lot of the processes and procedures and the type of onboarding and training and the way even working at an industrial site before you're allowed to do work for the day you submit a work permit and before you get to the you know you get to the location on site you do a hazard assessment and you fill out some paperwork right um i'm not saying you need the exact for cybersecurity, but that kind of thinking of okay we're going to acquire a new technology what are the risks before we put it into production let's 
test the heck out of it before, you know, like all of that mindset, we're not quite there yet, right? Like this security culture uh, and a lot of it we can learn from the safety and behavior-based training, right? That could be used on the cybersecurity side. That's still out there. We're not even, we're barely even tapping yeah. on that one, but I, I foresee a future for that. No, I, I, I love, I, I don't know exactly what all the puzzle pieces are of that, but I share your, certainly your message of how important that is and how it all comes to be. I hope you're right. I hope we, I hope we see that as a real concrete thing. And you know, it, safety culture took some time, but yeah, it's, it's ingrained. They, people wouldn't wear PPE in any of these, they wouldn't go in without their hard hat. I mean, it's, it's, it's given. Um, and they, they do it. They follow, you know, not, I suppose not every single human being, but for the most part, those, those programs are adhered to. And people just take it as part of the DNA of working in that environment, right? Yeah. And we're starting to see it at home. I would say not at home, but I'd say at the consumer level, where buyers and individuals, when they start making, thinking about cybersecurity of the product they're going to buy, even at a consumer level, we're starting to see a change. Rather than the cheapest product, you know, like the $50 webcam, which is full of vulnerabilities and is going to be hacked and, you know, your, your, you know, your nanny cam is going to be out on the internet or buy the $200 one. Yeah because it's better, right? Like that, that's when the culture is starting to change. It may be even at a simple consumer level um, and someday at a business level where it's same, same analogy, uh, you're buying a control system, you could buy the cheapest, which is still the driving factor, you know, minimum compliant bid, you know, fulfills all the requirements for the cheapest price possible. Okay, go buy that one. But there's a total cost of ownership, more vulnerabilities, more patching, more safeguards, and then when something happens, the impacts are greater. Like that we're, that's not part of today's buying of cybersecurity uh, and control systems. And anything I've heard from anybody that I know at any of the OEMs has said, no matter what we are currently doing, we will only really arrive when our customers demand it of us, if we have to be honest. It's gotta be customer driven. And then we will do more than we're doing even today. It makes it makes sense. I, you're right, from consumer to business, to business end users, we have to raise the bar and say, you've got to do this for me. I'm not going to buy this product unless it has these things, but that takes certainly time and some education, but I share your, your belief that's going to be part of it. Let's talk about volunteering. You have done a ton from speaking all over the place and serving on committees, ISA 99, very, very early on, and um, uh, ICSJWG's you know, steering team. You've done a ton of stuff. So talk a little bit about that and why you've done it and the benefits of doing that. I think we have and maybe this will fit something people are like, well, how do I get plugged in? How do I, especially earlier people earlier in their career, join some of these sorts of things, right? They're huge. And they we all benefit, they're positive outcome, but they also create your, your personal network, you know, increases significantly after being involved in volunteering on these things. Yes, ISA 99, I think was, well, one of the first, because it was one of the only control systems, cybersecurity yeah. at the time. Um, yeah, I actually, the first couple of times I spoke was because I couldn't get approval to travel for training, but I could get a true, I could get approval if I was speaking because it was under a marketing, right? So I actually used that as a, a means to get approved to travel, to go to the event I wanted because I was on the podium. And of course, you have to submit a good abstract and speak well to get invited back. So I did okay there. Um, but yes, um, Speaking or even help organizing uh, smaller B-sides in your local region or 
um, the country-specific sponsored, like in U.S., there's the ICSJWG, and in Canada, Public Safety Canada, and you know, and uh, you know, each each country around the world, these are opportunities to one get to an event, potentially just learn or speak, network, um, and share a message. So I, I when I speak, it's to teach, right? So uh, there's usually something in there that. Um, you see, when I speak, I'm usually speaking to like the people that I respect in industry. It's actually who I'm often, there's always a nugget that, you know, kind of speaks to that person. And then there's a portion of the conversation or the learning, which is really just everybody um, when I pick, pick my topics. Um, but it's when you get out there and network, then you start finding uh, people who know somebody, right? Or um, solving a problem or, you know, asking questions, you know, like th there's a lot of things where I was, I reach back into my network and I'm like, oh, you used to work with this particular vendor or this control system and we're having this problem. Can you connect me with somebody, right? So that's on the um, standard side. And what my biggest contribution was actually filling a gap that I went to look for previous. So it was actually, it was a NERC SIP customer and under the regulation, it said you had to go build a control systems patch management program. So what I did is I looked to ISA 99 at the time and said, I need to build a process. Well, at the time, it just really wasn't very good. So I was like, okay, I'll go invent it myself. We built the program and years later, I said, okay, this still isn't out there. I contributed it back into the standard, into the 2-3 document that was published in 2015 as a way of teaching everybody how to do this. Right, like that's that's what I love to do. Like for me, it's about moving the needle. Like those are terms, I use it all the time. So why I contribute to the standards, why I help with ICSGWG and Public Safety Canada, uh, and even my local community league, right? Um, it's just, I wanna make a difference. Like that's, that's what it's about. And for me in the con control system cyberspace, you know, to move the needle, to make a difference, you know, that is, not just one company, but like lots of organizations. And, and I would say you use the term networking and that sometimes is confusing for people. And yes, you can go to an event, meet someone and swap business cards and then you've just networked. On the face of it, that's a very, very small value proposition. It requires you know follow-up to do anything with it. You network, but it's not a value. Serving on a committee together, volunteering together, helping create, or like you said, a regional B-sides of it, that's high quality networking. You're, 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 you know, so to speak, rolling up your sleeves together, working on something that everybody benefits from. Uh, that that's a whole different thing, and the relationships that come from that are great. So the community benefits, and you also get a very different set of relationships out of those sorts of things. I would think over time. Yeah. Yes. Because when you're speaking at a conference, you know, if you're if you're good at your craft, which is coming up with a good story and teaching and you've got a good message, one, you're helping everybody in that audience, right? Like, you, so you've just added value, you've contributed, you've helped others. And that's the kind of networking that eventually when you ask or you put out a call, those individuals that have benefited from what you've taught them will be like, yeah, I'd love to help you out. You know, you, you taught me something way back. So it's actually almost returning the favor. But even, and that's obviously, not everybody's going to get podium time. That's great. It is, as you described, there's a lot of, of, of really cool dynamics on how that works and benefits everybody else. And it's high profile, but even volunteering, I think your other thing, which is like saying there's a lot of, of events, probably almost all events, 
would have volunteer positions and um, and and committees, you know, need people to join them at all levels of expertise, or some committees do to help document things, you know, help, you know, work with maybe some people on the committee that maybe have more experience. So there's not like, oh, I'd have to wait until I'm till X year from now before I could possibly, you know, be of value to any of those organizations. It's really not true. Just email up, you know, email up the the person who's running that project or that committee or say, hey, can I help? And you might find a pretty pretty nice response rate, you know, percentage wise. Of people going, yeah, we can use your help, and then you're then you're there, you're you're involving, and so you don't even have to be at the stage where you can get in front of a microphone. You can be earlier than that and still get involved with some of these things. Absolutely, the two examples, and I was I recognize both the individuals. One, they're still in college, and they were running a cyber club for the local university. So there's you know Hacky Learning and uh, another one out of the University of Calgary, and they're just organizing content. That's all they're doing. Like they're they're going to school full time. They're passionate about cybersecurity, and they're just going to you know trying to bring in interesting topics and speakers. And they're just, they're not the one on the podium. They're just bringing other people in. And I said that's awesome. Just keep it up. Or even yeah, just in your local city, you know, helping organize a B sides or a local talk. And you don't have to be the one speaking. It's just people appreciate someone to help organize with a plan to you know bring together a, a great event. Yeah. Let's talk mentorship, giving and receiving. And has that played a part in your career path? Yes. Um, I, you know, being technical early on in my early on in my career, I think, you know, habits are you know, when, when you're young and you're technical, you don't see other alternatives. You're kind of stubborn and stiff and you you're always like, oh, this is the right way to do it. And, you, you know, you're not very good at explaining it to others or even once you get into a leadership role or supervision role, kind of teaching others. So there was a lot of guidance and mentorship towards me in terms of how to how to spin it, how to communicate, how to empathize, how to understand the other person. And building, you know, control system cyber experts early in my career, I was you're having to teach right off the start. So teaching individuals advisory boards with different academic institutions, um, helping them even build control system cyber programs, peers at work, and even coaching in sports. Because, you know, when my son, he went into sports, I just, I couldn't help myself. You know, I just felt this need to kind of help all the, all the players on the bench or on the field um, do better. And, you know, you spot something and just trying to get to know them as an individual, find out what motivates them, what makes them tick, whether it's a, you know, a person in the organization or even, you know, a, you know, a child that's on a sports team. And then when you see them get excited and solve that problem, like that, that's so rewarding. I love that part. So any, uh, any, any sort of funny stories or things uh, that you recall from this whole story arc that uh, you just like, oh, this was a, this was a great occurrence and sort of impactful or interesting or, or entertaining? Anything come to mind? I've been traveling That's, around the world and something happens at a plant or at a location or. I would say the, the most, I, I mentioned off the start, I grew up rural. That also means that you kind of live in a pretty small bubble. You really don't have an understanding of what the globe really is or how um, the rest of the world. And I think probably the most eye opening for me was, you know, I was only a couple of years in my career and I went to Saudi Arabia. And I just got to see how different it was 
And I was even there during Ramadan. So this is, you get full exposure to the culture, the people, uh, the remoteness and, you know, you know, wonderful people. But that was probably the, that moment when I was like, wow, you just, where I grew up and my perception on what is the world changed when, when you started to travel and you see these other countries and then through work visiting different places you know you just have a true appreciation for other cultures and work ethics and people and i was i was like a deer in headlights i was just yeah a small town boy in a totally different world yeah. um it was totally evident the, even the others told me when i got there your eyes big as saucers <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about um, you've you've um, after a long storied career with uh, Honeywell, you have joined Denexus. Yes, I had plenty of opportunities and different roles with Honeywell. You know, there's they've got a lot of resources available, marketing, they've got brand, government relations. You know, they just have a reputation, so it opened a lot of doors, which was it really was good for me and mutually for them as well. But I decided that I was ready for a different direction. Right. I started out with Matricon, which was a startup, and and I wanted to be on a mission that was new and innovative and breakthrough and something new. Right. Like I wanted to invent. That's that's what I enjoy doing, uh, and that's what for me going to the Nexus was. Right. Just their mission of just trying to help solve this industrial and OT cybersecurity insurance as another option to what can you do when you're dealing with cybersecurity? And I, I think when I, I can relate, when I was, you know, I would do a cybersecurity assessment for an electric utility. I get to the end of this report, you know, let's say it's two, 300 pages and I spent a couple of months on it and I'd say, okay, here's your top 10 problems. And at that point, I know people still today, and I struggled myself, is like, why is that number one? Why would we go spend more money on this safeguard or this training or this technology? Or why would we upgrade these endpoints over here? Why does it matter? Why would we bother with anything? And uh, I think that's one, that's a problem that industry still faces is justifying cybersecurity spend. And with, you know, here we are, we're near the end of 2022 and the economy is changing a bit, scrutiny, on cybersecurity spend is going up. And I saw what we're going to be doing with Nexus is looking at it a different way, right? Like, okay, if you were to not, you know, let's put yourself in a position, we could spend this much money on this safeguard or this much money. Or in trying to put a financial value against the investment you're going to put in cybersecurity. So let, let's, let's, do like a, a risk assessment of an organization. And we say, okay, they're just getting started in cybersecurity. So we know what really good looks like if we look at say critical infrastructure or some of the more advanced regions or industries of the world, but this organization is just at the beginning. Well, what does that mean, right? Like what is their risks? Are they higher? And if they were to have a loss, would it be more? What would that value be? And where they're struggling early on is like, they don't even, they need help justifying to move from the very beginning of their journey to the very next step. Yeah. And having that in financial terms helps a cybersecurity professional perhaps communicate with their leadership because that's ultimately what they're looking at, right? The CFO, the CEO, and 
that's what the new mission was, right? And just kind of a startup environment, get to invent, uh, something I think that's going to grow in the future. I get to be at the front end of it. That's, that's what kind of led me to go off in a different direction and try and build something new. I, I love it. I mean, as a career uh, entrepreneur, and I really like the the Nexus uh, team as I've gotten to know them, um, I'm excited for you. And uh, uh, I'll be looking forward to um, to learn more about it. And I think you guys are on to something, too. So I, I wish you the best on, uh, on, on that aspect of your journey and uh, new chapter. Thank you. So I always end, you know, on what excites you about the future. Some aspect of it is what you're working on now and why you made the move. Is there anything else if you just looked as far ahead as you could that you're excited about or think that people could be excited about? You know, even if you're not going to go into it, it could be blockchain application or, you know, throwing out the buzzwords, AI, machine learning. But, you know, it could be something because people, you know, we people ask, um, you know, what could I start to maybe become an expert in early and be really, really valuable five years from now because I started, you know, I started ahead of the curve. I started before maybe everybody else was looking at this area or its impact, you know, in our arena. It, are there technologies or future things that you're you're personally excited about, you know, um, in any of those capacities? The one holy grail that I see is still being built. A lot of organizations, they're just, they're buying up cyber products and they've probably got five, six, seven different products, and they don't integrate with each other. They're siloed from each other. They're different. Your antivirus product might not be connected to your firewall product, and it might not be connected to your hardening, which yeah. is not connected to your logging. And then when you want to do reporting, they're kind of all isolated from each other. From a technology side, I do see more of this um, convergence coming together, but then at the same time, we're going to see more products come up underneath. Um, so it's one thing to have a product. The other is going to be getting over the, how would I explain it? Not the set and forget, but actually measuring the effectiveness of the tool, like actually automating the risk assessment. So great, you got all of these tools, but I see the future where let's start pulling the data out of all of the different tools and automating. Let's pull out of this log management system how well we're doing log management. We know when we're logging in, we know what we're logging, we can from there see, are we even using it effectively? And then, you know, um, are we doing log management well? And same as the firewalls, to be able to automate that more and then fill in more of the automated risk assessments. Um, because right now, a lot of that is still where the consultants provide value is because they're going into these environments. I see that as the future, right? Where we're automating more of those assessments and doing it in a more proactive and timely fashion. It, it doesn't really put a nail on any particular technology. I think the technology is always going to be moving, but to simplify cybersecurity is probably the, the, the because even just simply, you know, getting a brand new phone and configuring it securely, like even for my grandmother who gets a brand new phone and, you know, like if, you know, making it easier for everybody to be secure uh, even on a consumer level, but then in a control system environment, which is an extremely complicated in, environment to be able to automate, you know, is this a secure environment? Are we doing good? Are we getting worse? Or are we getting, you know, are we getting worse? Or are we getting better? Is our patching improving or getting worse? Are we hardening in the environment? Are we, do we have, is our infrastructure getting older and older? Therefore, our technical debt is going up. And are we hitting this end of life 
of a particular portion of the control system where we need to make a decision. Do we accept the risk? You know, like just that's where technology is going to start making that more visible. And we're not quite there yet. We're still in the, I think we're still in the, the toolbox to tool space, right? Where you buy a tool for this and a different tool for that. You know, you got a whole toolbox of things, but they never really all work together quite yet today. Well, I love the ending on the, your description of, uh, to use your term, the holy grail, you know, space, uh, opportunity space for this, for our industry, because you, you're, I couldn't agree with you more on all those themes. And when you don't have enough people, everything you're talking about there is critical and we don't have enough people. And so, you know, um, no. yeah, having a whole bunch of tools, I know as an early tool vendor, you know, early in the space 10 years ago, we, you know, in hindsight, we could have given the tool to dozens of customers and they couldn't have done anything with it. They couldn't have operationalized it because they didn't have the people process capability, maturity to, to at all have a war, you know, an anomaly detection system. Well, what would we do if we did see an anomaly? So yeah, it's a whole integrated chessboard, right? And, and you're, you're right. There's a complexity and, and too many products uh, and products that don't speak to each other. And, you know, the famous stories of, tar of Target using a, a monitoring solution that they had to keep tuning down because it's telling us too much to the point where they didn't didn't see something going on. You know, um, um, it doesn't mean the tool failed them, but the tool in a way, maturity of, you know, it's everything you described. We, we were not ready to absorb all this information that some of these things are starting to spit out. Yeah. Usually an indicator I try to think of is if you've got a tool that you've bought, and you don't have the resources to maintain it, you just bought it too soon. You just, you've got some other fundamentals to deal with first. I think everybody's on a journey yeah. and we sometimes will buy something out of order and we set, forget and decay and we get rid of it because we're like, oh, that's a crappy product or we didn't, you know, we didn't get the full investment out of it. It's like, well, maybe you weren't ready for it quite yet. Good you point. Know? Yeah, the right, the right tool at the right time and place is, is part, of the, part of the equation. Well, uh, Donovan, there's so many uh, threads we could pull but I think we're, we're running out of time. We'll have to have another uh, another chat. I think I thought of you know ten different sort of alleyways to go down with you. But I'd like to end with uh, the the same way I've ended all, all the episodes now um, with something that I've borrowed from a television show called Inside the Actor's Studio, and it ran for many decades. It may still be running, but the longtime host that I used to watch uh, years ago, James Lipton, has passed on. But forever, he interviewed all the famous actors and actresses uh, of our time. And he ended the show with something he called the Pavot questionnaire, which is based on a, a exact same 10 questions that a French show used before that. So I think this questions, these questions have been asked to people in an interview for many, many decades. I don't know, maybe 50 years. I don't know how far back it goes. So if you're up for it, we'll end uh, our time together and we'll go through the 10 questions. Yep. All right. So number one, what is your favorite word? Favorite word? Probably reflect because I'm a thinker, you know, either the situation, what I see, what someone does. I just kind of reflect on, you know, just that's, it also explains me a lot as well. What is your least favorite word? Assume, it just gets you into trouble. What turns you on either creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Intellectually, just a good nerdy conversation about technology, or even just, you know, just something intellectual. You know, my daughter and I, we have these fun little conversations at times, and she's she's quite academic, and I just, I love it. What turns you off? Statements like, this is our policy, right? You go to customer service, you're trying to return something, and it wasn't in time, and, or whatever it says, it says, this is our policy. And, I'm, and for me, policies are some, they're just a piece of paper, right? You can rewrite a policy, the policy could change, 
it just nothing aggravates me more when you know because i i'm like ah you'll change it next week anyway or the policy will be you know policies bend for certain people right so that that drives that drives me nuts what's uh, what is your favorite curse word i don't say it too often but if you uh we have this funny little game in our house where you know we'll we'll prank each other and if the kids get me good like they jump out they scare me or whatever and i say the f word that's usually my go-to word like that i don't even think about it like if the, if i say the f word they know they got me good like jump scare or <laughs> something Oh, what sound uh, sound or noise do you love? Love. Uh, I like a like a throaty V8, you know, like a muscle car or, you know, a, you know, a Dodge Hellcat or Ford Shelby like that throaty, deep feel it in your chest. I just love it. What sound or noise do you hate? Yippy little dogs. I don't know why they're barking in the first place. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I like to work with my hands. I love cars. You know, it'd probably be along the lines of like welding and auto body because you can just create, right? And I would probably not just like restore vehicles. I would probably do my own thing. I would build my own body body panels and just make my own shell for a car, something like that. What profession other than your own would you least like to do? At this point, I thought of doing it at one point. I'm probably never going to do it as an MBA. I don't think I need to at this point. I don't know if I'll ever go back. More because I probably wouldn't go, wouldn't worry about it anymore. And if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I made a difference. Well, you thank know, either... you, Jonathan Tyndall, director of OT cybersecurity at Denexus and uh, veteran of the OT cybersecurity space. Thank you for uh, all your efforts and the huge list of volunteer positions you've been in. We've all benefited from that, even if uh, people in our society don't know it, but those of us in the industry do know it. And Thank you for all of that and um, your endless quest and of tinkering and thinking and reflecting. And uh, it reflects uh, your career path and yeah, I think your reputation. So thank you for all that and spending some time with us uh, today. Thank you for the opportunity and just kind of just opening up the conversation, right? You know, just uh, like a good drink gets conversation started, you know, thank you for hosting today.